0: Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 17. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. It has been a special episode in the making. We have been nursing this topic for many episodes. And as one friend of the show wanted to call it the accidental bee podcast, I think it was high (laughs) time. I'm about to make puns here. It's about hive time that we have. No, um, and it was about high time that we talk about bees and make the whole show about it. Let's do it. The thing for you is that you've been interested in bees for a long time, far more than I have. And I I, I got to tell you, like, I'm, I'm the, the kind of guy that was primed to get really interested in bees, beekeeping, learning about them, nerding out about them. But it really took my son to take me over the tipping point and get serious about them because he wants to, you know, do some beekeeping and see where it goes. But you're the scientist that knows everything there is to know about bees. Am I right?
1: Uh, there's a lot more to learn about bees than that I know at the moment.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that's what we're going to explore then on the show. Do you want me, uh, uh, me to teach you what I've learned about bees or should you teach me first?
1: Why don't we-, we teach each other because I bet we can fill in a lot of gaps of knowledge that we have.
0: Okay, cool. Cool. Can you tell me all about bees? Like, where did you get started? Why are you interested in bees?
1: You know, um, it was YouTube that did it. Just trolling around on YouTube and I, you know, YouTube university, everything I know I learned on YouTube. Um, but I was just trolling around one day about 10 years ago and I saw this person with doing his Kenyan top bar highs and I said, Ooh, I want to do that. So I went down to my wood shop and I just smacked together a couple and probably four of them, I guess, and put them out in the woods at my house. And then I went and bought some bees. And that was the beginning of the whole process.
0: Now, did you already have, I guess this was kind of after you already had your woodworking uh, tools. And so this was just perfect for you because anything that you needed to build for your bees was right there.
1: Yeah, it was perfect and easy. I mean, literally, I went down to Home Depot, I bought some inexpensive lumber and a couple hours later, I had a finished Beehive.
0: Nice. You know, I have another friend who I was talking about uh, beekeeping with just earlier this week. And what he was saying was that when he got started, I think he was probably in his teens. What he did is he found the schematics for a Beehive. He just went over to Home Depot and picked out his wood and told him how he needed it cut. And they did all the cutting for him there. So I didn't realize until he and I got into, in, into that 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 would actually be a potential way that I could b- buy some more bee materials, uh, beehives, and construct more in the future. It hadn't even occurred to me that I wouldn't necessarily need power tools to do all the, the cutting for assembly. That was really neat. I'm looking forward to taking advantage of that if I got to.
1: Well, you need good plans, and you need simple plans because they're not going to do you know, mortise and tenon, tongue and groove, um, or any, any fancy joinery, but if you've got a way just to take boards and join them edge-on, yeah, you can do it. Nice. How many hives have you had again? So in the past, I've built myself some Kenyan top bar hives, which were never very successful. I built myself some Waray hives, which looks more like the standard Langstroth square box sort of thing, just a little smaller, and they don't have frames on the inside. And then now I have a lay in's hive, and you have a lay-in's hive because I built two. And there's one sitting on my porch and one sitting in your yard.
0: Yes, thank you very much. It is a work of art. It really looks neat. Like I'm not interested in a clutter looking box, you know, something that just looks too utilitarian. But beehives can have a very nice aesthetic appeal to them. And it doesn't look as scary. Like, you don't think, oh, bees, there's going to be thousands of them swarming all over the neighborhood. Look out, kids. Uh, It's very unintrusive.
1: My favorite thing is when someone paints it in some fanciful design, like a pink flowers on it or it'll be blue or, you know, it's not just a white box of doom. It's actually something artistic that I really like when people do that.
0: Oh, I'm going to have to Google it afterward. Get on Pinterest and look up some cool painted designs. That's kind of oh, yeah. to Do
1: anything fun. you want. A beehive does not have to be white. That's just the standard way people have done it over, you know, decades.
0: So what are some reasons why people would want to beekeep themselves? Is it all about the honey? Was that what it was for you?
1: Um, no, it was more like a Mount Everest sort of thing you know, why did you climb that mountain? Because it was there. And I was just like, I want to keep bees. I had no idea what I was doing. I was figuring I would get some honey out of it. But it was more of the experimental, I want to learn as I go. I like woodworking and I like animals. And I'm going to put those two things together and I'm going to see if anything comes out of it. Very nice. And did something come out of it? Did you get a lot of honey? Did you? I know I never got a lot of honey, but I did get honey and I did get wax. um, But it was Uh, a long journey of discovery and learning. And had I started with the standard American Langstroth hive, I probably would have been a lot more successful than with my Kenyan top bar hive because I was a total newbie. I had no idea what I was doing and my bees never thrived. And I'm hoping with this new lay-ins design, which is a larger frame-based hive that uh, we can do better than I did 10 years ago when I was just starting. Hmm. Most new beekeepers don't realize that they're going to lose colonies. It's not like you put bees in a colony and it's happy and everything's great and at the end of the season you harvest honey and next year you get more honey, next year you get more honey, next year you get more honey. Get more honey. It doesn't work like that at all. Most colonies might last a season or two, but you got to work to keep them alive. Mm. And that's what I didn't know. It's not like you put that makes bees in a lot of there. Sense. And it automatically, yeah. you know, you get honey at the end of the year. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. You got to move things. You got to check things. You got to treat them. You got to feed them sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a lot more work than you think.
0: Is, is some of that just because there so much depends upon a good, healthy queen? And if the queen should go away, then you're basically out unless you realize what's happened and then quickly get a queen replacement?
1: Well... I didn't realize it until I thought through it that these are wild animals, and I'm trying to keep wild animals in a rather artificial way. And you know what? They're going to do what what they want to do, irrespective of what I want them to do. They're going to do what they think is best based on the conditions that I've given them.
0: And that is why I thought that this was so perfect for Equinox, because what we're really describing is quality control in a scientific method approach in handling a wild colony. It's, it's so interesting. It, there's a scientific method to be applied to the beekeeping.
1: Yeah, and yet in the science, there's so much we don't know. I just read a mm. paper a couple of weeks ago where someone, they just sequenced all the viruses they found in honeybees. And they found not just brand new species of viruses, entire new classes of viruses that no one had ever seen before. Literally just discovered a couple of weeks ago.
0: So what does that mean? Does that mean that these are bee virus related, like it's unique to bees? Unique uh, to bees. I would, I would have figured that they would have done all the research they could for
1: bee diseases by now. Well, really. but, but these viruses probably don't cause disease. They're probably oh, regulating right. the microorganisms inside the bee gut. You know, that reminds
0: me, we need to add viruses as a topic for Equinox because oh, yeah. something that you've done with a lot of the things you've talked about before elsewhere in other avenues is how so many of the viruses are actually good for living organisms.
1: Excellent idea. And Chalk that up. I'll put that yeah, on the list I just totally future episodes yeah. viruses.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, we're going to make allusions to them here, but that is something that affects all of living creatures and they're, they're not just bad ones. Yeah. So, what I wanted to mention real quick is that one thing for all our listeners, if you're at all interested in this, be careful that you don't get really excited about bees and then start buying equipment or a hive before you've done more research. I highly recommend you spend several dozen hours. Watching videos, or reading articles, talk to some guys who have done some beekeeping before, get in touch with Rob through Facebook or YouTube, yeah. uh, just uh, pick his brain a little bit. Join but a local I beekeeping say,
1: group. There are beekeeping groups everywhere.
0: It, yeah. What I, what I want to say that I have discovered, though, in the last month is that there is a lot of fun to be had here, and the bee community around the world is really, really fun. And yeah, so, good
1: people. I, that is yeah. true. They're just regular, good, fun, nice people.
0: You couldn't pull me into the fishing community or into the big wild game hunting community, but (laughs) I can see myself getting into this.
1: Well, let's do it. We just need some bees. This is the weirdest thing. We're talking about beekeeping and we don't have bees. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
0: (laughs) I I have an idea about that, which I haven't discussed with you yet. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But I would think now is a really good time for you to give us a history lesson.
1: Okay. How far back in history shall we go? Shall we go back all the way to biblical times?
0: <laughs> well, I'm I'm all for it. Because every time I looked into a video about bees, that began with things like 2 million years ago. Nah, before that. we had anything we've got today, there was only plants and accidentally these insects that started pollinating them. You know, it was that kind of thing. And I, and I was like, come on, give me a break. Give me something of substance here, not these wild guesses in the blue
1: okay but we can go back to what we actually know from archaeology and history and forget all Thank the evolutionary the archaeology spin, which we and don't history know. is my cup of tea today all right so when god was promising to the israelites that they're going to go to the land of canaan how did he describe that land
0: flowing with milk and honey
1: yeah flowing Good with stuff. milk and honey wait a minute honey yes yeah, this means honey at least goes back to the bronze age
0: Okay, so the Bronze Age would be h- how many thousand years, hundred years, before, you know, the time of Christ? Were we talking about 3,000 well, years?
1: David, King David, lived about the year 1000 BC, and that was Iron Age two. Before that is Iron Age one, and before that is a Bronze Age. So we're talking about the period of the Judges, Bronze Age.
0: But wasn't it, weren't they mentioned by the time or lifetime of Moses? Like, it wasn't the mention yeah. of the land flowing with milk and honey in his age. That's, yeah. That predates the Judges, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, that's still Bronze Age. That's what we call that. That but, yeah. period okay. of ancient history. Okay. So at least that far back, there's mentions in historical records and other con- countries also, historical records of bees and even beekeeping. And they've found ancient beehives in Israel, in archaeology. Just yeah, actually, recently.
0: pretty recently. Yeah, some good yeah, stuff. Did you see that? that some uh, pictures. It's like a wall of beehives. Very, yeah. Very neat picture. Great article.
1: Yeah, and so there's You know, in history, they would do something called a skep, which is like a woven basket that they keep bees in at the end of the season. They just squish it and get the honey out. I imagine that honey was not very good tasting.
0: (laughs) Used for medicinal purposes, maybe?
1: Well, when you do uh, that kind of an extraction with all the babies and the adults and the propolis, it's going to taste gamey. It's going to taste very strongly of propolis. And it's going to be a little bit unpleasant. I know I'm this because I <laughs> did it once, not realizing, um, you know, with my, my top bar design, I pulled a bar off and I just, you know, squished it up and squeezed all the honey out with my hands and, you know, f- tried to figure out how to get honey out of honeycomb. And oh my, that stuff was so strong. It was literally like, woo, this stuff is... Tasty, oh, yuck. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's, it's, it's like you got the lesson in how to get honey from bees from a, a brown bear. And he said, what you do is you just take the honeycomb and you squish it in your palms and then you suck it off of your fingers.
1: Yes, and, and there's pupae in there, even better, the extra protein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: you. <Ew. laughs>
1: so I imagine that's what ancient honey tasted like, but, you know, they didn't have anything else sweet, so it still would have been worth its weight in gold.
0: Oh yeah I, but see the thing is i could I could grant the possibility though we don't have details unless you know something I don't know that they could have figured out a way you know they had the, they had tools they could theoretically find a way to get purer honey would you wouldn't you think at least at least by like say the time of uh, the Babylonian era because I remember hearing somewhere while doing some research that historically the Babylonians also kept bees. And they were there in their capital city. They had beekeeping going on. Can't you imagine that they would have had some kind of way of getting pure honey by then?
1: I think in order to do that, you would need a queen excluder. You need to prevent the queen from getting into certain portions of the hive so she doesn't lay eggs there. And I don't okay. think anyone could have made a material even that they would have thought about it. So I don't know. Interesting. And it would have taken someone to take a you know one of their small bee colonies, fo- somehow kill all the bees in it, and then sample the different portions to see which one was tastier. And that sounds like modern science more than ancient technology. But then again, people were okay, smart that back does then. Sense. I just, yeah. I just hmm. don't
0: know. I remember watching one of the videos where they showed how that you can take the honeycomb and stick it into this uh, honey extractor. Um, cylinder constructed stainless steel thing and you turn it and by turning it, you're, you're, how does it put it? Like it, it does, it doesn't just like let the honey flow and run out, but but the, what is the turning doing
1: exactly? It's basically centripetal force. It flings all the honey that. to the outside walls and it drips down the outside wall. Yeah, so the faster you faster, can turn yeah. it,
0: the faster it flows. Yeah, yeah, I can understand why they didn't have a tool like that in ancient times.
1: Yeah, nothing like that at all. But you can get the honey out of comb if you decap it first on a hot day. It'll flow pretty good. But if it's not really hot... I hadn't thought of that. The honey just doesn't come out of the comb very easily.
0: Oh, that is so true. We got, we got one of those bottles of honey in the cabinet right now, and it's just not warm enough to make the last honey at the bottom come out. It's like solidified. Yeah. So going back to what we were talking about with the ancient beekeeping, that was coming out of the Middle East, and something that I hadn't really thought about before was that there are bee varieties, bee species, and related uh, insects like wasps around the world But not all of them are honey-producing bees. But we know that at least the honey-producing bees were originating out of the Middle East. Is that kind of confirmed?
1: Um, Yes. In fact, for us North Americans, it's very odd when you realize that the honeybee is not native to North America or South America. That is weird, yeah. That we did not have honeybees here until European colonists brought them over.
0: If we had to go back to the Middle East to get our honey, I'd be so disappointed. Because yep. I've
1: really missed honey in my life. That'd be very sad. But then we have to ask the question then, if a lot of plants are pollinated by bees and we didn't have honeybees here, what did all the pollinating before the Europeans got here?
0: Oh, that's a very good point. And they're able to pollinate a lot more plants than just flowers.
1: True, but the, the European, Asian, African honeybees that we use are really bad at pollinating North American crops. Oh, okay. They can do it, but they do it really inefficiently. And some things they miss entirely, like squash. They don't pollinate squash. It takes a squash bee, which most people have never even considered before, but there are little teeny bees that are really good at pollinating squashes, and those are native to North America. Squash bees. Yes. I'm looking and them
0: up right now. They're
1: cool, and they're azalea bees, too. A lot of azalea. If you ever watch the Masters Golf Tournament... There's always azaleas everywhere, in you know Augusta, Georgia in March. Well, there's an azalea bee that specializes in azaleas and rhododendrons. And then and here in the southeast, you know Georgia's called the peach State, but we now grow more blueberries than we do peaches. Blueberries oh, are I an unbelievably that. huge industry, and there's a bee called the southeastern blueberry bee. <laughs> oh
0: that sounds And like that a very bee, cute bee
1: is what pollinates the blueberry bushes. And they estimated that one bee is worth 20 dollars.
0: Oh, man, I need to buy some of those bees.
1: Well, you know, quart container is probably 10 bucks at the grocery store. So one little bee pollinates about two quarts worth of blueberries. Amazing. Mm. In fact, they, um, there's uh, the beekeepers that pollinate like things like the almond groves in California. They will load up a semi-trailer full of beehives and truck them around the country. And when they arrive in California, they put them out. And I think it's like one bee is five cents worth of almonds. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a lot of almonds to make a nickel's worth of almonds. Oh, yeah. It and when you really put is. one huh. colony with thirty to 50,000 bees, that's a lot of nickels. Mm. And so the farmer's like, yeah, here, I'll give you $100 a day. Put your beehive here because I'm not getting any almonds if I don't have bees. But when the almond season is done, those bees, there's no sense in leaving them there. They'll bring them up to Michigan or down to Florida. Literally, they move around the country. It's an amazing industry.
0: One of the things that I think is also striking about bees is how different all the varieties look. Because I was watching this one example where they were showing a bee kind and comparing it to some wasps. And then looking at the wasp, I didn't even realize that that was a wasp except that the video was telling me. If I had seen that bug out there, I'd have said, "Uh, I don't know what this thing is. It's just a winged insect. Yeah. Uh, but the then I was watching another documentary where it was showing some uh bees I want to say from India and they weren't even yellow. They were like green, a beautiful yeah. green. Green. I didn't expect black,
1: that. Black, yellow, gray. They come in all different sizes and all different colors and they specialize in different things, different types of plants. Here in America, I mean, we've also got a range of uh of bee uh, groups uh, why do you say that? You, say, you know people think of bees and they think of a bee colony in a in a beehive, you know thousands upon thousands of bees and one queen and lots of workers, and then a few male drones that really do nothing, but once a year they they fly out and they mate with a queen somewhere but that 's not what most bees are like. most bees are actually are solitary like around here. I never ran into them when I was growing up in New York, but when I came down to Georgia, I learned about these things called carpenter bees, which are everywhere you have woods, and they 're you know, a terror to anything that's sitting outside that's not painted well enough. But they will cut a hole in a piece of wood. Uh, in fact, I've got one in my, my railing of my porch today. Uh, you can see a little sawdust on the ground that will eat into the wood. And then they'll mm-hmm. they'll put a uh, an egg way in the back, which will then... Go To a pupa, sorry, to go to a larva and then go to a pupa and then crawl out of the hole. And they'll put a whole bunch of them, which is weird because that means the first one in is going to be the first one to hatch and he's going to push his way through all of his siblings. I think he must kill them. I don't know how exactly that works, but that's really gross to think about. But the mm. hole they make, interestingly, is just a little teeny bit smaller than a 45 shell casing. Hmm. So if you take a 45 shell, you can take a hammer and tap it into the hole and seal up the little babies inside.
0: <laughs> oh, no. oh, I don't want to do that. Oh, yeah, you
1: do because they're eating your house and they're eating your porch railing. Oh, and, that's true. You know, that's go true. go find a nice tree somewhere out in the forest. That's fine, little bee, but don't eat my house. No, no. Speaking of
0: which, you remember that carpenter bee that I have in my wooden uh, bench out in front? Yeah. I I think it's gone. I, I, I didn't even need to take care of it, but... I've been monitoring the situation, and I'm not hearing any activity or seeing the bee come back and forth. So that's fine. It, but the I little babies are in there; too.
1: they're going to hatch out in a couple of months, or maybe next year, depending. Uh, probably a couple of months, and they'll be warm. I had a, a porch uh, swing that my neighbor in Atlanta gave me when I moved out to um, out to the country, and he was you know he just had it sitting on his his yard to get thrown away. He's like, "Hey, you want that?" He's like, "No." So I just threw it on my trailer and brought it out to the country, and I hung it up on chains on my back porch, and I had this for a long time but he said it had carpenter bees in it and sure enough it did and every year I'd be sitting on my porch swing with a fly swatter and I'd smack a carpenter bee when it came out three or four carpenter bees every year at least and then one day I looked down at the carpenter bee I just smashed and I realized it wasn't a carpenter bee it was a completely different species I had no idea what it was Oh, it, really? it lived in wood like carpenter bees, but it was a totally different species. I'm like, what is this? And what, what have I been killing here? Maybe I should just leave them alone. And you know, I don't care if they eat this one porch swing as long as they don't eat the rest of my house. Um, but they never came back after that. So I had them like three or four years, huh. and they just disappeared. So I never figured out what that was. But see, that was the beginning of my exploration into bees. I knew nothing about them before this. I didn't know they were different species. I didn't know that the honeybee wasn't native to North America. I didn't know how to take care of bees and how colonies worked and things like that. It was all a brand new experience for me. And that was one of the things that started opening up my eyes to that these are amazing animals and they're worth an interesting study.
0: So just taking a quick look at some of the different varieties, the Carpenters, the Bumble, the Azalea, the Squash, and the Southeastern Blueberry Bees, yeah they all have a lot of physical features in common. And I've probably just about seen all of these guys out there, all these girls out there, at one time, because I've noticed, like, oh, that one just looks a little bit different, and I didn't think too much about it. I thought, oh, that just must be another Bumblebee. I I didn't realize Bumblebees could look different from one another. But in general they kind of sort of do follow a, a physical, their physical features all the time for the entirety of their kind. And you were saying, how many different kinds of bees are there in general, just in North America alone?
1: Just in North America, there are more than 4,000 native bee species.
0: Now, are all of them really important for some kind of pollinating, or, or, or is there a lot of them like carpenter bees that really don't <laughs> serve a purpose except to be pests and chew through our wood?
1: Well, carpenter bees—they pollinate plants. I mean, it's not—it's not their fault. They eat wood, but they're good for the okay, garden. Okay, so
0: they're collecting the pollen for like their their the next generation, like the other yeah. bees are.
1: One of the hmm. biggest difference between bees and wasps is most wasps are carnivores, and they'll collect other insects and things and pack their nests with that. Now, hun- uh, things something like yellow jackets—they will swarm around anything sugary at a picnic. So obviously they're collecting nectary sort of things also, but they will go and attack any, like anytime around here, if you uh, dig or move a log or do something outside, yellow jacks will come and explore that area. And if there's a roly poly or an earthworm, or they will grab that and fly away with it. They're bringing it back to their nest to feed their babies. Yeah. Yeah. Creepy. But most bees. (laughs) It really is. Yeah. Most bees are herbivores. Not all, but almost all of them will collect pollen or nectar, um, some little different variations, and they'll bring it back to their nest and feed their babies. The bumblebees are cool because they're like on, in the spectrum. They're in between honeybees and the singular bees. A bumblebee will actually make a colony and they'll really have a queen and a bunch of workers and they have a, like a, a division of labor, but they tend not to get into the tens of thousands. You get a couple hundred bumblebees in a bumblebee nest, and they nest in the ground. A lot of bees nest in the ground. And it's just kind of really cool that they'll, they'll live for the winter, and then all the bees will die, including the queen. And then next spring, when, they, when it warms up, they hatch out again. It's a brand new crop of bees.
0: And that's different from some of the other, like, comb honey, uh, hive comb bees, where uh, under the right conditions, the queen can survive for a few years.
1: Yes, right. And we want them to because we want them, we want to, you know, getting into modern technology here, we want their numbers to build up significantly in the late winter so that in the springtime when the flowers start blooming, there's thousands of bees in the colony and boom, they can start collecting. And it's not true everywhere, but here in Georgia, the first main honey flow is in March. That's early for other places. I'm up, you know, up north, there's still frozen a lot of places in March, but here you get a massive honey flow in March. And a trickle through the rest of spring, and another big one in August. Hmm.
0: So, can you get more honey if you go more south than Georgia, maybe down into Florida, or maybe parts of Texas and towards into Mexico? Or, you know, would you get some more honey?
1: Not necessarily. It all depends. Okay. And everything is very seasonal and very specialized, and you get different things blooming in different places. And this is why the big guys they move—they don't just leave their colonies in Florida. They drive them around to capture the. Big honey flows. In fact, if you think about it, um, in tropical areas, there's not a season. But in temperate areas, there is a season. There's a period of no plant life in a winter time, and then abundant plant life, and then no plant life. And those places tend to have a massive flow seasonally. And so if you can get your bees to that area at the right time when that certain plant is blooming, you can get a lot of honey, a lot more than you could ever in Florida. Mm. But Florida will be a year round trickle. Something I thought
0: that was really remarkable about the kinds of bees that pollinate the blueberries and the azaleas, the squash plants. Another one I heard about was an Asian kind of bee that was accidentally brought to the U.S. What is really good for alfalfa. We couldn't get alfalfa to grow in the States without them. Yeah. And what is neat is just how all these different kinds are really necessary for growing different kinds of crops. So, they, like you were saying, they'll transport that Asian kind of bee around the country to where they're doing the alfalfa to get uh, sustainable crops of that going.
1: Cool. You know, you never think of that. The bees might be controlling what species of plants can be in an area. Yeah. Because without wild. the bees, that species isn't going to make any seeds. <laughs> yeah. It really makes you, it makes you wonder because
0: it seems like the science, like you were saying earlier, it, there's so much more left to explore and figure out. Now that we know there's these unique associations between the, these bee kinds and certain crops, it seems like the f- farmers have learned a lot and taken advantage of that, but there's a whole lot more that they could take advantage of and uh, be a little bit more systematic in the future generations. I could see farming more heavily influenced by beekeeping. Oh yeah.
1: Well, now we do remote sensing from satellites and uh, a tractor will have a GPS on it and the GPS will be like, okay, in this, you know, 10 meter square plot, I need to add this percent nitrogen to the water feed. But over here, I need to add a little bit more phosphorus and they can literally (laughs) fertilize for specific regions of the pasture that they're plowing. Field, not pasture, but they can They can literally do it to that level of control. We will be doing that That with bees also. You know, this breed of bees, this species of bee, this style, this number will be brought to some field to do X, Y, or Z, and we're going to get it down to a science, but we still got a lot more to learn. I mean, bees are a very complicated animal. Besides the fact they have all these pheromones, they're very visual, they remember things. They also have a very complicated um, biota living inside them. They've got I all sorts it. of weird, you know, bacteria and protozoa and viruses in their gut, and we're just starting to unpack that. And so we hmm. know we have to, f- you know, we know that for for us, we have to eat the right diet, or our intestinal floor gets all messed up. Yeah, well, that's true for bees also. Mm.
0: But they seem to have such a simple diet; they, they're just living off of sugar, basically. There's, you know, I heard one beekeeper. He cracked me up. He said. They basically got to get their carbs they got to get their sugar, and you know that's basically what humans eat too <laughs> I cracked up he he I think he was oversimplifying things, but yeah
1: yeah, very much oversimplifying things
0: on that note there was another beekeeper who pointed out you know the honey is not necessarily what bees eat it's really just the winter supply of backup resources
1: well, they do eat it and they do need to power themselves and they have to You think how small a honey bee is and how much heat it must lose because the surface to volume ratio is so messed up. They lose a lot of heat really quickly, and they Mm. need X number of calories to burn in order to produce enough heat to keep themselves warm. And so if it's above 50 degrees, they can thermoregulate. Their body will be a certain temperature, and they just move their muscles more to keep warm. Below 50 degrees, they get torpid. They can't keep warm, so they just stop moving. And so in the wintertime, all the bees will cluster together in the colony and buzz together in order to keep warm, but they tend not to fly if it's less than 50 degrees. Now they can and they do, but they tend not to just because they get cold. So the, the honey is to power them for all their amazing things that they do during the season and they extra pack it on in order to survive the winter. You know, an experienced beekeeper will know that, okay, a colony of this size will need this many pounds of honey to make it through the winter. And if they don't have it, they're going to die. And so what we try to do is give them a happy place to live and lots of food so they get extra honey and we try to take the extra. But we can't take it all because they'll die. And we don't want to give them too much. That would just be waste. We want to balance how much we take with how much they need. So do we have like a ratio? Do we know with a hive that has
0: so uh before we're going to talk more about hives later if we don't get to it in this episode and another one we'll continue but with the hives in a beekeeper's beehive you've got several wooden frames with a design like ours the layin's uh horizontal beehive and one of these frames is like four pieces of wood that are cut together to make a square And you allow for the bees to make their honey in the frame in, would you call it like a sheet? So the honeycomb is like a square sheet top to bottom of this wooden frame?
1: Yeah, you can call it that if you want.
0: Okay, so with that in mind, if you get a healthy, thriving bee colony in a box that has seven frames, one of those frames could easily weigh, what would you say, more than 25 pounds, 30
1: pounds? Uh, with a layin's hive because they're about the size of two standard Langstroths, yeah, you could. It could be really heavy.
0: So then, could you take fifty percent of the honey, or you know, what's kind of like fair and reasonable to take your cut in a single year?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I do know that they probably need pounds of honey, and so typically, what what a beekeeper will do have the the hive body, and then on top of that, he might have a a storage thing. Uh, for, for the bees honey. And then he'll put a queen excluder on top of that. And so anything above that, the, uh, the queen can't get up there and it'll be nothing but pure honeycomb. And he'll just take that for his own use.
0: Okay.
1: In the hive body itself, the each frame depends on the frame. Some will have honey in them. Some will have brood in them. And some of them will have brood and then it'll be honey on the periphery. And so they'll do that mixture as, as however they want. They'll do that mixture inside the main part of the colony. And then we put like a, a cap on top, and we try to take what they might put up on top.
0: So then, how would you collect the honey off of a frame in something like our horizontal h- hives? Are you just trying to find an example of a frame once they they're they're filling it, they're using it, they've built their honeycomb up? You're just looking for the frames that are h- honey exclusive? Does it, like yeah. you're saying that can happen?
1: Yeah. Well, basically, the the queen is going to hang out at one end of the of the box. And so all the brood will be around the queen, either on one frame or two or maybe three frames. And the other end will be nothing but honey. And so even without a queen excluder, there's still a separation. If they're robust and healthy and really, really packing on the honey, there'll be plenty of frames with nothing but honey. If they're not super thriving, there might be some issues, but there's only a couple of frames with honey, and then you can't take that. You have to leave it for the bees.
0: Oh, of course, yeah.
1: And one of the reasons why we have an insulated hive, even though we haven't insulated them yet, but I built them to be insulated, is that in the wintertime, when we insulate them, they can stay warmer. They don't need as much food. And that's probably what killed me in my first attempts with the, the African top bar hive, the Kenyan top bar hive, is there was no insulation in those things. The, whole, the bottom was nothing but mesh. It must have been freezing cold inside that beehive in the wintertime. And the bees just didn't make it. But hopefully we give them a nice, happy, warm environment this next time we have bees and they'll be able to make it through the winter.
0: So then let's talk a little bit about the, what the colony of the, the honeybee is doing in the wild. Yeah, okay. Under normal circumstances, they're using like a hollow in a tree or a hollow in the ground to build up their honeycombs?
1: Um, yeah, most well, honeybees, now that they've escaped, after we brought them here, they went wild. We have feral honeybee colonies everywhere, trees. Uh, is the most common thing. Sometimes in a hole in a house, they'll build between the walls or in an attic. But oh, most commonly in trees, oh. honeybees aren't ground nesting bees. There's actually some cool ones in Africa. They actually hang their honeycomb from a branch. Mm. They build their honeycomb outside and they're big fat bees with, re- and they're really aggressive. So most things will stay away from them. Uh, but it's really cool. But here in, in the States, they're in, you know, North and South America, I guess, and probably Australia and other places where we imported these types of bees. They they go into a hollow in a tree and they'll just start making comb and start making honey and start making babies. And so the goal with a hive is to have a box about the same size as they would normally choose for a hollow tree. All right. So I'm a geneticist, and one of the exciting things about bees and beekeeping is the genetics of the bees. Because they are weird. They are not mammals. They do not have a genetic what? system like you and me. <laughs> oh, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, so you have a queen, right? The queen is diploid. She has two copies of each chromosome. She'll mate with a male. We call them drones. You can see them in the, in the colony. A drone is a little bit bigger than a worker, and the drone cell is a little bit bigger than a worker cell. You don't want lots huh. and lots of drones because they're a waste of space. They eat, and they don't do anything except mate. Once a year or twice a year, whatever. They they don't, they're just taking up space and holding DNA, basically. But when a queen mates with a drone, every time she lays an egg, that egg is a process of a haploid drone. Haploid means he's only got half of his chromosomes. So I don't remember how many chromosomes, let's see. Uh, oh yeah, no. bees have 16 chromosomes. So a queen will have two pairs times 16. She'll have 32 chromosomes, but the drone only has 16. He's only got one of each. Huh. That would kill us. I mean, eggs and sperm in humans have are haploid; they have 23 chromosomes yeah. only. But the adult we have 46 chromosomes, plus the sex chromosomes and the uh, mitochondria. But we have two copies of each chromosome. The queen bee has two copies of each chromosome. The drone only has one copy. And when the queen mates with the drone, she'll store that sperm. And every time she lays an egg, it's a, a recombined version. In other words, the the workers are not identical. They're sisters, yeah. but each one of them is a different fertilized egg.
0: Is a different combination of the genes, yeah. Yes,
1: yeah, a different combination of the genes. Even though they're sisters, they're not they're not clones.
0: Wow. Huh.
1: And they have the same genetics as the queen. They have two copies yeah, yeah. of each chromosome, but they have a different food supply. A different supply. Yeah, huh. it's it's an epigenetic thing. If you feed a worker royal jelly, it will grow into a queen. It will look Ooh. different. And it will behave differently. Even though it's genetically the same as a worker, they're different because of the food supply. So we have genetics, we have epigenetics, and we have very strange uh, reproductive behaviors. It's just really cool. So what makes it royal jelly? Is that like a different kind of honey, a thicker stuff? It's a different stuff, yeah. It's got different chemicals in it. In fact, I'm not even sure how it's made. Now that you bring this up, i got something else to learn. I have to go figure out how a bee makes royal jelly. What a cool question. I don't even know.
0: It is a a peculiar question. We'll have to talk about that when we continue next time, then. After I go learn how how it's done, yeah. Well, then So then there's going to be another food supply that makes the bee grow into a drone?
1: No, no. Give a drone normal worker food, and it just grows into a drone because it's male. Okay. Well, male, it's not male. It's not male like a human male. It's haploid. It's different. And it mates with the queen. Is the queen female? How can you even call it female? There's no body parts. There's no male and female body parts here. There's no XY chromosome here. It's not even fair to call it female or the drone a male, but they are different. And so there's two sexes. It's just, and we apply female to it. I don't even know why we do that. In fact, now I'm really thinking about it. It's quite unfair and quite sexist of the beekeepers to do that. Um just just they're just they like they're from Mars. They're just different.
0: Well, I mean, insects do look like aliens. They they have those big eyes, big heads, kind of fun, funny shape to them. They they yeah, they look more alien than anything else.
1: And if you blow them up to sci-fi proportions, yeah, you got a good horror story. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> Let's not do that. <laughs> but I mean, it's bad enough when we see like a spider running around in our garage and it's only the size of a quarter. We freak out. We don't need to see any ginormous bees. There, there, there are some. I saw some pictures of some horrifyingly large bees on the internet. Ugh, you don't want to look them
1: up. Yeah, some big ones and they're scary. All right, man. And wasps. Yeah, the the killer wasps. What are those things called? The murder hornets. Oh, give me a break. I think people (laughs) like to be scared and therefore memes that are scary propagate on the internet in ridiculous ways. Anyway. um,
0: I'm just relieved to see a video where a praying menace was able to take out the murder hornet. That felt great. Yeah, that was cool. I was a bit relieved.
1: Yes. We just need to release massive numbers of, of praying mantis anytime there's a murder hornet outbreak. Yeah. Yeah. But going back to the queen... She's going to lay thousands of eggs in her lifetime. She's going to lay them in an empty honeycomb, and the workers are going to raise the little egg. It's going to hatch and become a larva, and it's going to be fed and kept warm, and the larva is going to go into a little cocoon thing. We call that a pupa, and they'll cap off the top of the, uh, the cell at that point, and the pupa will go through metamorphosis. Basically, the inside liquefies, and all the cells become different parts of different things, and that'll hatch out, and now we have a worker. And for a couple of wow. Cup a little while i'm not exactly sure how long but for a little while the newly hatched workers are uh the workers inside the hive they learn how to do all the taking care of stuff and then they graduate housekeeping yeah they graduate and get to get to go and collect food and bring it back it's really weird how they do that they go through all the different stages and all the important parts see I was designing bees. I would, you know, have half of them grow up to take care of the hive, and half of them grow up to go forage. But it's not the way this works. They kind of like graduate, and they're allowed to go and forage. And now, because i mean, I think I talked about this a couple episodes ago. I just learned recently that there are heater bees. Heater bees. Heater bees. Their purpose is to like keep the hive warm, yeah. warm or something. They'll go into an empty cell and they'll, mm, and they'll just buzz. And at buzzing because it requires energy, produces heat, and they can heat up all the cells around them. <laughs> That's <is> so cool. <laughs> it's, like, it's like if you stick a bee in a socket and it gets hot. Yeah. And <laughs> bees also, they have, they have uh, four wings, but the front and the back wings, they lock together in a bee. But the heater bee will unlock their feathers, their oh. wings, uh, feathers, duh, their wings, they unlock their wings so they can't fly, and they'll just vibrate, and that vibration produces warmth. And they'll keep the little babies warm at just the right temperature. Wow, <laughs> oh, That's just so cool. And then if that's yeah. not working, when you look at a bee comb, it's usually it's a sheet of bees on the bee comb. And that's on purpose. That's a layer of warmth. And they will regulate how many bees per square inch in order to produce exactly the right temperature for the growing larvae. Wow. <laughs> These <laughs> animals so are cool. smart. They're really smart. A couple of years ago, I read a story of... Um, the world record bee flight and it was ah, 10 miles or something like that. It was in Australia in a vast open area and it was a mountain in the background. So the entire time the bee is flying, it can use the mountain as a geographic reference point. And it was flying something like 10 miles across open country to get to a source of nectar and flying back to the hive. They couldn't have done that without the mountain, but this means they have, they can see far away. And they can remember what they're seeing. And we already know that they use the angle of the sun to orient themselves. And that famous bee dance, which I love watching. I've never actually seen it in my the own hive, but that The bee dance. When a bee finds a new source of food, it'll come back to the hive and it'll dance. It'll wiggle its tail and go in a circle. And all the other bees will, um, they'll line up in a circle facing the other bee. And then when we, when we realize what the bee was doing, the size of the circle tells how far away it is. And then as it's making a circle, it'll cut the circle, and that's the angle of the sun.
0: What? Wow.
1: (laughs) So there she's telling her sisters, here's how far away it is, and this is the angle of the sun. And boom, they'll do that, and they'll fly to this new source.
0: Whoa. Bees are genius. (laughs) That is awesome.
1: And the solitary bees don't do anything like this at all. But these colonial honeybees. They're really missing out. They are. They, yeah, they're missing all their sisters and all, that, all this group fun they can have and talking to each other. Oh, we haven't even gotten into different types of honey yet. Honey is no, amazing. No, no, no. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's different colors. It's different flavors. It's different textures. If there's a, a big honey flow around kudzu, like um, this summer, happened last summer also, but remember last time we are talking about the, the uh, Silver Kama Trail. And so last summer I was riding my bike in a silver comma trail in the middle of August and I smelled grapes because I was going through a kudzu patch. Kudzu smells like grapes. It smells very strongly of grape when it's blooming.
0: We have a lot of that around here, and I, I see it some places of our own neighborhood, but it's not everywhere. So yeah, it, and see, so when you catch it, I, it, it's such a large vine system that I'm usually just overwhelmed by what it looks like as it's taking over the property. But yes, yeah, I, I haven't really thought about what it smelled like.
1: Yeah, it smells like grapes, and the honey the bees make from the kudzu is purple. You can that get awesome. purple <laughs> honey, and there's also reddish honey, and there's golden honey, and honey of all sorts of different colors depending upon the crop.
0: There's a this uh, popular farming game that I've played with the kids, and in the game, depending on what kind of flowers you have around the honeybees' hives, it produces different kind of honeys just for
1: the game. Oh, cool! Versus so whoever, wild honey. Yeah, whoever yeah. wrote that game knew about honey. Yeah. And there's also water content. You can have a honey that's very thick because it has a low water content or very runny. Those are cheap honeys. And you don't, like if you go to a store, anytime I buy honey now, I'll grab it and I'll turn it upside down and I'll watch the bubble rise through the honey and I'll watch how fast mm. it rises because there's water in honey by nature. That's it. There's always some water, but a, a honey producer can add more water to the honey to dilute it oh, so he can stretch okay. his honey out Sneaky. more. And so but if you watch that little bubble rise, you can tell the honey content than the water content. And you don't want hmm. one that's very liquidy. That's just cheap. But it's still another problem, and that is high fructose corn syrup.
0: Oh, are, they're putting that into some kinds of honey for lot. stretching if it you, out? If
1: you buy like Subi honey or one of the cheap honeys. Oh, that is terrible. There's no scientific definition or legal definition of what honey is.
0: Oh, that's
1: awful dirty. And you can't make a legal or scientific definition because different honeys are different. There was a problem about 10, 15 years ago where we detected some insecticides or, that were illegal to use in America in honey. And they were coming from honey that were being imported from China. And so the U.S. government said, no more imports of Chinese honey. The next year, the Vietnamese honey industry exploded, and all these imports were coming from Vietnam. But it wasn't Vietnamese honey. It was Chinese honey being shipped through Vietnam. (laughs) Of course. And so we shut that down, and then a couple years after that, the honey imports from India started growing very quickly. And one thing you can do is you can look at honey under a microscope, and you can see pollen, and you can identify the geographic source of the honey. Because oh, there are wow. plants that grow in India that don't grow in China, and vice versa. And but there's a problem now is that bee industries have figured out how to ultra filter honey and pull the pollen out, oh, so you can have those dirty dogs. You could have a chemical laced honey from China, warmed up, passed through a filter, and mixed with Indian honey, so it has the right pollen, and you can't tell. Ah, oh. <laughs> this is sneaky. <laughs> it's, it's, this is, is sneaky. Wow. And there's money. There's lots of money involved in this. Honey is liquid gold. And so I don't like buying honey at a grocery store. I like buying honey from a local honey grower. Yeah. Now I have to trust this grower that he's not treating his colonies with pesticides while the bees are producing honey. He's going to have to treat his colonies with pesticides or they're going to die of varroa mites. We have to treat most colonies. It's just... The law of the West, and you have to do it with pesticides, or we would not have a honey industry in America. And yet, you have to Ooh. trust the person that are doing that at the right time because you don't want that stuff in your honey. Yeah. Oh, man. And it goes on and there on. There's so much more to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, there is.
0: I want to talk more about the, the pests and the predators and how to protect the colony next time. So, is that, is that a good place to stop
1: for now? Yeah, sure. I mean, no, it's not a good place to stop because there's too much to say and no, it's too it's interesting not. and too fun, and yeah. we only cracked open this we amazing can talk subject. We about for hours. Yeah, yeah,
0: this is going to definitely be one of those regularly returning topics for the series. I can tell in the
1: future. Okay, I like that thought because there's so much more to learn. Bees are amazing creations, and they're just a joy. Yeah. An accidental bee podcast. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> Well,
0: then thank you everyone for joining us on this quest. If you want to dig deeper into the buzz about this topic, you can find the links to stuff that we discussed in the show notes on our website, Uh, Just uh, fly on over to nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 17. Or if you're right there, the show notes are also with this episode in the podcast app. And you should also check out Rob's content on biblical genetics. It's not about beekeeping, but it's really good. It's really interesting and thorough about genetics topics. And he's also got uh, biblical genetics on Facebook and YouTube. And uh, there you can see the videos and join in the discussions in the comments. If you want to catch up with me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox.